we're a treasure trove of values, essentially. And you can see this in a myriad of different ways. And one way that I decided to illustrate it was by taking you around the world to 101 different countries, 102 to be exact, because I give you a little bonus in the, in the book. And each of those countries are illustrated by a different value or depict a different value. So, for example, I take you into Iran and talk about the value of commitment. I take you to India and show you the, the strength of faith and how nothing really nothing moves without there being like a substantive faith element. Or I take you to respect and show you how respect permeates almost every facet of society. What would it mean if we had that level of respect in our own lives? Or if we had the chutzpah of Israel? Or if we had that level of education or indeed respect for education that we see in Palestine? So the aim of the book is not only just to uncover and discover different values, it's then to take you through a process that helps you uncover the values that are most important to you. Hi there, this is David Knorr. Welcome to the third season of the Curvebenders podcast. I'm so excited after years of research and interviews and due diligence on this topic to finally be able to publish Curvebenders this year. It'll be my 11th book as a follow-on to Relationship Economics and Co-Create. Curvebenders, in essence, are your strategic relationships that enable your non-linear growth in the future. Our research points to 15 forces that we believe will dramatically impact the future of how you'll work, how you'll live, how you'll play, and how you'll give. The global pandemic is just one example. So how will you remain relevant if more disruption will come at us more often with potentially far greater impact? In each episode, I want to share with you insights, great ideas from guests I've invited to join us, as well as practical ideas in the evolution of your skills, your knowledge, your behaviors, and most importantly, what I believe is your biggest asset, which is your portfolio of relationships. I call those relationships your curve benders. So let's get started. Hi, everybody. Nor here. Let me ask you, what are you really getting from the public social networks? Have you noticed most are becoming increasingly divisive or highly self-promotional? Are you getting solicited for various products or services from a barrage of people you don't know? I'm seeing an interesting trend, one of micro-communities made up of smaller but more intimate gatherings of like-minded professionals. I've always believed that people fundamentally gather for two reasons, content and community. So what can I learn and who else can I meet that I wouldn't otherwise? That's exactly what we've done. Earlier this year, we launched our private online community called the North Forum. It's a place where like-minded professionals are gathering to learn, share, and grow through insights about strategic relationships, visual storytelling, and their personal reinvention through this idea of non-linear growth. This is also where you'll find the show notes from this episode, articles, references to position papers by my podcast guests. It's where I am every day, engaging now over 2,500 members, sharing exclusive content, resources, and events. So I hope you'll check it out at norgroup.com slash forum. That's n-o-u-r group.com slash forum.
Welcome back to another episode of the Curvebenders podcast. I'm elated to be joined by Dr. Mandeep Rai, a fellow Thinkers 50 2021 Radar colleague. Hello, Mandeep. Hello, David. How are you? I'm great, thanks. Great to have you. For those that may not know as much about you, can you kindly start with your professional background, where you've been, what you've done today? I'm glad you've said professional because, you know, when one says background, <laughs> you could, I could start from all kinds of places. So professionally, where have I been? I started life in the city, in London, on Green Street, JP Morgan. So that was in a private bank working with high net worth individuals. And when JP Morgan merged with Chase Manhattan, the, the lady who hired me or who found me in the milk round at university was good enough to meet me on that day and talk to me about what what was going on for me. And at that time, Olivier had the idea of potentially even creating a boutique bank of his own. And so I had decided to take a slight, a short three-month sabbatical with the blessing of Joe Ryan, who is still a very good mentor of mine and now the godmother of my children. So this relationship we we you know from being the first person who hired me literally straight out of university she's still a very dear 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 key important part of my life. So not to think that your first job is not important would be my lesson. And with that 3 month sabbatical I had decided to go to a new French a new Italian and I decided to go to Central America to improve my Spanish. And lo and behold, I ha you can't plan these things. What had happened or what happened is that I found myself at Cancun Airport wanting to be Cuban in Cuba and trying to find a way of shedding the big hammock I had just bought from Mexico and any branded good that I had, like my Nike trainers, and to get rid of the Colgate and, you know, just anything that could give away the fact that I wasn't potentially Cuban. But other than that, my Spanish was now decent. My hair was nice and curly. I looked nice and brown and I could easily be Cuban if I just didn't, you know, give myself away. And so I asked a woman who was dressed in this bright green silk suit and she had flaming red hair. And I'd spent the night at the airport waiting for this flight that was due to bound for L.A., and that would have been my last stop. So I asked this lady whether she would kindly check in this huge hammock in which I put all my other branded belongings and whether she would just check it in with her own luggage. And then once it got to L.A., just allow it to go round and round on the conveyor belt. And eventually I thought it'd end up in lost property. So it's a bit of an audacious ask. And she said, wow, you have the same chutzpah that my son had. OK, I'll do it. I'll do it for young people like you and for my son and for others, I'll take your hammock. And then I get an email a few days later once I had landed in Cancun successfully was that there were sniffer dogs all over my bag in LA. And she was now in um, LAPD, you know, that kind of, I feel like saying NYPD blue, the, but the LA version the, she, that she was now, this is her one and only communication she's allowed from the cell. And, you know, the blood drains from my face and I'm thinking, oh, my God, what was in that? There was nothing. What could possibly have been in that hammock? What's happened? And as I scroll down the email, she's laughing and says, only joking, but the, your hammock is not in lost, lost property. If you want your property back, you're going to have to come and visit me in my home, Sunset Boulevard. And I have the plan to not let you go. And she basically offered me a kind of an internship and then a job and... Long story short, I decided to 
to take a further sabbatical from JP Morgan and start working in LA, making documentaries, films, writing books. We did a big kind of 12 part series for PBS. And that was, I guess, my entry into this wonderful world of media. And that took me to then freelance with the BBC World Service, travel extensively reporting back for the World Service as like a foreign roaming correspondent, if you will. And within all of that, I also worked within international development. So often working with lots of grassroots organizations while I was reporting and then went on and got a master's in development economics, which led to dints in the UN, in the EU, lots of kind of large international development organizations. And whilst doing all of this kind of on radio, on television, I was asked to set up a, a kind of a media hub in the Middle East, in Abu Dhabi to be precise. And the at the time, 9-11 had just happened and I had reported on 9-11 and the aftermath from New York itself. At the time, I was reporting from the new UN in the mornings and from the NASDAQ in the afternoons, so political and financial news. And when 9-11 hit New York, it was very clear that the world was not going to be the same again. And the vision in Abu Dhabi was that the, the way that Islam was portrayed, the narration around it, and even just the plethora of media for that to come from the Middle East, so that we weren't just consuming Hollywood and Bollywood, that there was also good Middle Eastern kind of media content. And so we went on to create the first media venture capital fund, investing in all kinds of media outfits across the MENA region, across the Middle East and North Africa region. So theme parks or singers, a talent across the board. It was one of the most fulfilling jobs I think I've ever done. And it led to me thinking, well, maybe I should do an MBA while I'm doing this because, you know, suddenly Mike Moritz was willing to speak to me from Sequoia or any VC anywhere was willing to have a conversation with me. And I just felt as though I wanted to increase my acumen, if you will. That led to me winning a place at Harvard Business School. And I also took some classes at MIT. And it led to me Basically, having Nitin Noria, who then went on to become the dean of HBS, being a very good mentor of mine. And we spoke a lot about values and spoke about this one professor called Sumatra Goshal, who would look at organizations and thought if these organizations had values throughout their DNA, what a difference it would make, what a transformative world we would have. So initially, we created an MBA oath. So that at that point, it was now kind of between 2008 and 2010. The financial crisis had just happened. Business people's reputation was synonymous to used car salesmen, frankly. And we wanted to create an oath that was similar to an oath that you take in the medical profession or in the legal profession, an oath that created rigor and standards and values within the business profession. And as students began to take this oath, we we spread this oath much beyond London Business School, which is where it first began, and Harvard Business School and other business schools around the world. We started to then take it to master's programs. And then we thought, well, why stop there? Why not take it to companies and corporations and global institutions? And so we launched it with the young global leaders at the World Economic Forum in Davos. This is approximately 10 years ago now. 
And that led my deep dive into the study of values. And I then went on to do a PhD in global values and started looking in a real serious way as to how one can ascertain what their core values are. How can an organization do this with integrity and with in a practical way? How could it really transform a society or an institution or a company or a school indeed? And what could this mean for us as individuals, for groups, for institutions, and indeed the planet? And so it was a long journey, but 10 years later, I emerged with a book called The Values Compass. So this came out um, in January 2020, January 2020. And then as we know, the pandemic hit and you and I both became, I guess, for our think, think uh, thought leadership became thought leaders or the the thinkers of 2021. And now here we are having this conversation. So what a fascinating background. I love where you've been. I love all that you've done. Talk a little more about Values Compass and where did that come from? And really the gist of the book at the onset of this global pandemic. And then I want to talk about how the pandemic has impacted it. Okay. So the gist of the book is that we all have, we're we're a treasure trove of values, essentially. And the planet is. And you can see this in a myriad of different ways. And one way that I decided to illustrate it was by taking you around the world to 101 different countries, 102 to be exact, because I give you a little bonus in the in the book. And each of those countries are illustrated by a different value or depict a different value. So, for example, I take you into Iran and talk about the value of commitment. I take you to India and show you the, the strength of faith and how nothing really nothing moves without there being like a substantive faith element. Or I take you to respect and show you how respect permeates almost every facet of society. What would it mean if we had that level of respect in our own lives? Or if we had the chutzpah of Israel? Or if we had that level of education or indeed respect for education that we see in Palestine. So the aim of the book is not only just to uncover and discover different values, it's then to take you through a process that helps you uncover the values that are most important to you, your top five. And to answer your question very directly of how has this changed over the course of the pandemic, I feel that people have made a deep inquiry into their values as the reset button was pressed on the world, and as they've thought about what really matters most to them. So I love that. And for our audience who may have not traveled as extensively, those values, I think, are omnipresent when you go to these countries and when you get to know the real fabric or the real DNA of some of those countries. Uh, Mandy, translate that into companies, into organizations. We all want organizations that have values, but candidly, a lot of those seem to be lip service or a lot of them seem to be wall art where we put them up on you know, our websites and through our values and company walls. And somehow it's not aligned with how the leadership or the organization shows up. How do you translate the insights from the book into what one can implement in an organization? Well, it's really, it's a great question. And it's interesting that you should ask that having just asked about the pandemic beforehand, because what I have found, your question was absolutely the case last year or the year before. But during the pandemic, companies 
have really had to step up. For example, we've recently seen MasterCard create, not only during the pandemic did they create great initiatives, but even in the last few weeks when we've seen COVID-19 become rampant across India, they created a, a complete bespoke service of giving back in India. We see it with Satya Nadella, where he has just donated to the hospital in his own city of Seattle. We see it not just in giving and we see the translation of of values such as compassion, creativity, connectivity, celebration in real tangible actions. And actually, I think young the younger generation are not fooled by lip service, are not swayed by lip service, are not willing to work somewhere because a little document was once created that said a few words and now is collecting dust on the top shelf. That isn't working anymore. Companies that are stepping forward and actually walking the talk are the ones that then motivate at least the younger generation to take those roles or to create roles for themselves and to make sure that they are innovative and that they walk through the door with real passion and purpose and mission. And companies that are paying lip service, frankly, we're seeing their numbers dwindle. We're seeing people, even during a pandemic, not just lose jobs, but they're leaving jobs. So values no longer can be a lip service game. Values matter and people are making huge life day changing decisions based on the values of their organization. Love that and love that your professional journey kind of in many ways started at JP Morgan and and from both your education, your travels, your experiences, you're going to understand my next question, which is how do I or how does a, a PNL leader tie those values into enterprise value creation? How do I turn that into the performance execution or results that's expected of me and my organization? Well, what we're finding is that Again, within the younger generation, but I think this is spreading upwards across the generations, is that people are willing to spend up to 50%, if not more, on a service, a product, a good, goods, or indeed companies that are providing providing a service in accordance to a person's values. So if they're fair trade or if they're ethical or if their supply chain reflects equity or diversity or inclusion or equality, these types of values are will, are being rewarded with a greater PL. I think we have enough studies and facts prove this across the board. And if anyone doubts this, please reach out to me. We are finding that when a company is really clear about its values. So for example, when Unilever takes, acquires companies based on its values, like seventh generation, and decides that sustainability is going to be at the core of what it does, it matters to people and it makes a difference. And they've seen, you know, they've seen a boom in the last year. And I think another company that perhaps provides similar products, whether it be cleaning products or whether it be cleansing products, etc., but doesn't have the same integrity in its values, hasn't seen the same growth. So let me let me switch that. Is it also detrimental to an organization that not just that we may not have some of these values, but perhaps they can convey that in that narrative, convey that in you know some of the things they're doing in, in a more positive, constructive, market-facing approach? 
Yes, I mean, I, I, I feel that part of a large part of this is one, ascertaining what your values are, but then two, communicating them. Firstly, to communicate them within the organization itself, the way it motivates, indeed, the way it transforms the way someone then comes into work, whether it be virtually or literally how they step into the office the next, next day, it, it is transformative. And then the way that communi- is communicated outward. It's communicated. I'm not just talking about marketing. I'm talking about how that, whether it be the resolve to make a difference, whether it be ingenuity and innovation or excellence or customer service. Once you've said it and once you've really communicated it, then you're held to a standard that people feel proud to work for and that consumers are touched by. So for example, I'll I'll give a very personal example of what I experienced during the pandemic, working with BA, British Airways. I went on a flight, they could, there was a huge delay such that I had a a virtual event that I needed to attend, or not just attend actually, MC, moderate, lead. And they could see that this wasn't going to happen because of the delays that were being occurred. And they went Without me having to say anything or reach out to them, they reached out to me and followed up on the experience that I had and what could they do better because they will have other customers with this type of experience in the future. What could they do? Would I like that my ticket refunded? Just recently, in the case of India, they have supplied their, you know, their flights, their aircraft to supply oxygen concentrators free of charge. Like two, three, four, five flights have just left in this last week. Those type of actions, that they don't even have to be communicated. You know, the community is speaking about how grateful they are to British Airways, for example. So actions are speaking much louder than one company having to communicate what they stand for. And and that and I, I, I just think right now, given what the world is going through, those actions mean a lot and will carry over time. You, one of the fascinating articles I read that you had commented on was putting values before your goals. Talk about that. Talk about as I, as I believe we go into a a business renaissance and more organizations will invest in their people and infrastructure and business models. And we all have aspirations to not just recover from this global pandemic, but really set a new standard. Talk about values coming before goals and why they're so critical. Let me take this to an individual level just to be very specific with the answer. We could say that even charity one might do for a selfish reason. You might do it to feel good. You might do it to, you know, give back. Maybe religiously it's been said that you should give um, thrift, like, you know, a 10% as a Christian or as a Muslim or as a Sikh. But if you bring the value of compassion before what you might need as an individual, then whatever you're doing, how you interact with individuals, how you interact with your team members, what you say, the language you use and the way you're received and the way you're perceived is dramatically different. So that's what I mean by putting values before your goals. Your objective might be to increase your P&L account. But if you bring your value first, in this case, I'm just using the value of compassion. It could be excellence. It could be teamwork. It could be diversity, whatever your value be. If you put that first, how you operate will be different, markedly different, and noticeably better received. 
You and I recently spoke at the uh, London Business Literature Festival. It was delightful to see you and another one of our colleagues, Sally Halgerson. What were the key takeaways for the audience from that from that gathering? And when you share insights about the evolution of your book, Mandeep, I've always said I learn more about my books after they come out because people read them and they have their own stories and perspectives. And are, are there some of your suppositions that have been dramatically either reinforced or refuted in, in subsequent to its publishing? Oh, I, I love this question. And I love the fact that you, David, have said that, you know, you learn more about your book after it's been published. I have been amazed at how many people came to me and said, this is what I noticed. This is what I've learned about myself. This is what had always taken place, but I didn't know why it was taking place, or I didn't know what was really driving me. For example, I was working at the, at the University of Cambridge and one of the top professors there said, I've been driven by a sense of responsibility, not knowing it was responsibility that was driving me all the time, not knowing that the way, why I act the way I act and how sometimes it can even be annoying for others or sometimes it can feel like I push too hard or sometimes it can seem to my family that I'm over the top. It's just coming from this burning desire to be responsible right from the get-go. And I just hadn't realized that that was the value. That was really heartening to hear. And I hear stories like that all the time where people have deep insights about who they are or what's important to them, or indeed what they wish was important to them and how they have transformed their lives. I mean, wow, if there's if there's a reason to write a book, that would be it. I mean, it's it's truly motivating and inspiring to me. And it happens on a daily basis. You mentioned, and I and I tend to concur that during this pandemic, we've all experienced a deep inquiry and and really pushed the reset button on our values and things that are most important to us. Mandeep, what do you believe are some of the trends that will stay with us on the other side of this pandemic? What do you believe are some of the ones that will have a material impact in the way we'll work or live or play or give to others? Well, I think the the transformation that has happened technologically is here to stay. But rather than it being something that deteriorates our life, which I think was our concern perhaps before the pandemic, I think we're henceforth going to be much more mindful or more mindful about how to enhance our life, how to make sure that we're connected or that we're communicating, or that we're collaborating, rather than competing, or rather than isolating ourselves. I think we've begun to appreciate that we can step into or create a new world that's enhanced by technology, which then in turn brings us not just closer together, but closer in a more meaningful way. I'm not sure if you found this, David, but I have found that people are, and I'm sure you have to some degree, found that people are operating in almost smaller but more meaningful concentric circles, and yet also wider concentric circles, but that those relationships are deeper in in quite a profound way. So, for example, you might have, um, I don't know if you're on the app Clubhouse, but the relationships I've seen build from this audio app are an example of exactly that. It's almost like fewer but more meaningful, more authentic, more real relationships versus just sheer contacts we all have. Yes, less is more, but we're being able to we're actually tangibly seeing that. So I'm now really fascinated by kind of your thinking because the other trend that I tend to have is 
as I finish one book, I'm always thinking about the next one. I'm thinking about the ideas that come out of the research or the interviews or the conversations that I tried to capture in this book. So what's next for you? What's next after the values compass? What's really got you intrigued at the moment and moving forward? I have to tell you, there are so many light bulb, bulb moments that have occurred in the last. It was like it was like going for a really good long run and coming back with lots of ideas. That's how I feel like this reset year has been. But the one burning itch that I have, which might seem really paradoxical, is to travel the countries that I hadn't included in the book and to have a real complete comprehensive values compass. So I've spent the last month in places like Cameroon and Gabon and Central Africa Republic. <laughs> and I intend to go back to Africa and cover some of the other nations that I haven't yet had the, the privilege to experience. And this might seem like a very odd time to travel, and you'd be right, it is an odd time to travel, but I can't help it. I'm just, I've just, I, I just receive so much from this values-based work that I don't want to stop. As you and I, I applaud that immensely. As you and I discussed, curve benders are these relationships that have a profound impact on not just what we accomplish, but they really shape the individuals, the managers, the leaders, the human beings that we become. Can you think of one or two curve benders in your own journey? You were kind enough to mention a couple in your introduction, but think of, are there some that you know, 20 years later, 30 years later, you remember as, wow, because I met that person, I am where I am today? Yes, you're right that I mentioned some of them in my introduction. I feel like Nitin Noria from Harvard Business School is one of them. Kathy Alden from Creative Visions is one of them. But even, even I mean, it's going to sound cliche, but it's very true. I see the effects of my parenting, like my mother, my father, my grandparents, and how much they've given me more over time and more having done this values-based work because you're able to uncover, or it's, like, it's like peeling an onion. You're able to peel off the layers that have created you, examine what has informed you, and then decide what you're keeping. And that has been truly, truly empowering. What's the best way for our audience to learn more about you and your work? One would be to jump onto my website, which is www.mandeep-rai.com. I'm also accessible on all social media platforms under Dr. Mandeep Rai or Mandeep Rai through you, David, since we're so well connected. And yes, through my agents. What else can I say? I'm very open, accessible, and hits. Thank you for an insightful conversation and being our guest on the Curvebenders podcast. Thank you for having me, David. I really love the, how attentively you listen and how this has truly been a conversation rather than just yet another podcast. So thank you. By the way, three quick points, new season and a renewed commitment to our digital footprint, blog, newsletter, social media. We turn the show notes from these podcasts into more in-depth articles, so you can find those in our completely revamped new blog forthcoming at norgroup.com slash blog. Number two, we're completely revamping our newsletter to make them even more practical and relevant with both a free and a premium version. Check it out at norgroup.com slash newsletter. Lastly, we want to bring the content from these episodes to life. So whether it's a Twitter chat with a guest or live streaming through our Facebook and YouTube channels, or even more recently, a Clubhouse audio conversation, 
Check out our various social media channels with the hashtag Curvebenders for the latest update. I hope you found this conversation with my friend, Dr. Mandeep Rai, of interest and value. What a fascinating woman and just what she's done, where she's been. She's a classy vagabond, right? And highly intelligent and impactful one. But, you know, from Morgan Stanley to L.A. and a BBC, you know, freelance correspondent to a media hub in Abu Dhabi and just all that she's done I I genuinely believe she's exactly the right person to bring this global perspective around values to organizations, to uh, much more the front of all of our awareness. So obviously, by the title of this session, it's really all about values-based alignment and how proactively are we thinking about those values in how we lead. So this is the NOR summary notes. Hopefully in three minutes or less, I can summarize the key ideas in this session and help you put them to good use. One, obviously I can't recommend the book enough. 102 countries and the incredibly different values that these countries believe in. I read a somewhat, I believe, sad statistic that less than 40% of Americans have passports. So... How, and before it was required for, I think, Canada, Mexico was like less than 27%. So how can you have an opinion about a very different part of the world that you don't really know anything about? So I can't encourage you to enough, pick up the book. And as we all get vaccinated, as travel becomes easier post-pandemic, make it a point to get a new stamp every year, uh, you know, and really get out and feel the texture beyond the touristy spots feel the texture of many of these companies. Number two, the translation, the impact of those values in our organizations, right? What started as an MBA oath, they, you know, brought into the World Economic Forum and, the you know, young global leaders at Davos. And what a fabulous opportunity to really prioritize. And I love her examples, whether it was Unilever and their sustainability efforts, or Microsoft, or those that are proactively, I think I saw Salesforce shipping, you know, PPE, you know, flight to India, in midst of this pandemic, those are all, you know, very much aligned with the leaders and with the organization. So really thinking, really ascertaining, really communicating, what are those values within the organization, I think goes a long way. Um, I love her comments about the countries that she hasn't visited yet. So really getting a global perspective on these values, really uncovering. And that is a intellectually curious mind that unequivocally fuels not only Mandeep's personal and professional growth, but it could also do the exact same thing for you. So how do you, what has to happen for you to make this real commitment to do the incredibly difficult work necessary to become world-class in your chosen field is something that I absolutely took away from my conversation. Don't forget, Mandeep is going to be my guest on our live streams via LinkedIn, Facebook, YouTube, Twitter today at noon Eastern. So I hope you join us with your questions. The show notes, links to her information is in the North Forum. I have some fabulous guests coming up. Harry Kramer is the former CEO of Baxter. Michael Watkins is the global 
fame of the first 90 days book, Erica Duan, my Marshall Goldsmith MG100 and Thinker's 50 friend has got a brand new book called The Digital Body Language. Jeff Parker is a professor at Dartmouth, also on the Thinker's 50 list. So great, great guests coming up. So I hope you'll subscribe wherever you consume podcasts or check them out at norgroup.com slash podcast. I'm so grateful for all of our listeners on the Curve Vendors podcast. I'd love to hear from you with ideas, with suggestions, with guests you'd love to hear from at this intersection of future of work, strategic relationships, and nonlinear growth. You can simply email podcast at norgroup.com or follow us on various social media channels where I use the hashtag Curve Vendors to keep you posted on our latest progress.